This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 10th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. NPR's David Green interviewed Ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream guys. Ben Cohen described his Bernie Sanders-inspired flavor, Bernie's Yearning, as mostly mint chocolate chip, but with a twist. The huge chocolate disc at the top represents all the wealth that's gone to the top 1%. And the way you eat it is you take your soup spoon and you whack it into a bunch of little pieces and then you mix it around and have a more equitable (laughs) distribution of wealth. And if you can't finish, you're not allowed to pass the ice cream on to your kids because of the dangers of inherited wealth. It's all explained in our other flavor, Thomas Piketty's Lickety Banana Evenly Split. There's a lot more detail in that one. And our Genie Coefficient Crunch is a flat, classless ice cream popular in Scandinavia, where ice cream is actually just a little bit of cream over ice. It is not at all delicious. But like everything else from Scandinavia, it's better than what Americans would invent. Oh, oh, and Ben and Jerry's has a new Hillary Clinton flavor ice cream. Every carton is fed to you by your own personal butler. The flavor keeps changing, but yes, it comes with a private server. And with that, we all ate our ice cream and thought about the serious world issues that aging hippie ice cream gnomes have taught us. Issues like income inequality and for some reason not diabetes. On the show today, a scourge worse than a chunky monkey or a chubby hubby, cyber war. And a roundup of some state news, including states like Louisiana, Missouri, and West Virginia. The states, they're known as laboratories of democracy, but in one case, one turned into a veritable vomitorium of deregulation. But first, cyber war. Control, alt, destroy. The idea of cyber war is certainly scary and daunting, but in ways that's less than immediate. For one, it certainly represents a danger. I mean, all of our infrastructure is attached to the internet, therefore attached to each other. But what are we to do with the idea of cyber war? How are we to process it? A cyber attack could bring civilization to a crashing halt. You can't deny that. But all the ones and zeros, they're abstract. Look, a nuclear bomb explodes. Boom. A dirty bomb radiates. We get that. What do you do with programs like Solar Sunrise, Moonlight Maze, Loud Auto, Howler Monkey, Monkey Calendar, Nightstand, Rage Master, all actual code names or perhaps fronts in cyber war? Fred Kaplan has been writing for Slate as the War Stories columnist for years and years. And hey, Fred, I guess this is a new type of war, but also a type of war that we don't even know what it means. It is hypothetical in a way, yet we're seeing it starting to happen. It has been happening, and it's less new than you might think. It's been thought about since the dawn of the Internet itself. 
Back in 1967, when the Defense Department was about to roll out the ARPANET, which was the precursor to the Internet, a way for defense contractors and labs to share information all on the same network, there was a guy named Willis Ware. He was a computer pioneer. You know, he worked with von Neumann on the first computers in the 40s. He was the head of the computer science department of the RAND Corporation on the scientific advisory board to the NSA. He wrote a paper. It was classified. It's been declassified since. It's fascinating. And he says, you know, there's something about a network. When you put information on a network where people can share this online, he used the word online, Mm -hmm. with remote users from unsecured, multiple unsecured locations, you are going to create inherent vulnerabilities. You won't be able to keep secrets. And when I was doing the research for this, I I talked with a guy who was in charge of the program. And I said, were you familiar with Willis Ware's paper? He goes, oh, yeah, sure, I knew Willis. I said, well, what would you think? He goes, well, I took it to the team. and, And they said, oh, God, don't. Don't saddle us with a security requirement, too. I mean, look how hard it was just to get where we are. This is like telling the Wright brothers that their first plane has to fly 20 miles and carry 50 passengers. Let's take this one step at a time. The Russians won't be able to do anything like this for decades. It's like telling Alexander Graham Bell, okay, and make sure you can't tap the phone. I got a heavy lift as it is. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so it, it did take decades, two and a half or three decades, by which time, Whole systems and networks had risen up with no provision for security whatsoever. So I see this as sort of, you know, the bitten apple in the digital Garden of Eden. Now, this guy Willis Ware, he pops up. Did he influence any of the uh, the screenwriters and the people who weren't, you know, the guys from War Games, the guys from uh, Sneakers who are the same guys? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, War Games... I guess I should tell that story in yeah. the war game. It's, such a, it's good a crucial story. story. Yeah. It begins the book. So it's the first weekend of June in 1983, and Ronald Reagan is up one of his five-day weekends in Camp David watching movies every night. Saturday night, he watched war games. Comes back to the White House the following Wednesday. There's a big meeting with all of his national security advisors. Uh, not about this, but about the MX missile, if you remember what that mm-hmm. was. But at one point, he puts down his index cards. And he says, has anybody seen this movie War Games? Okay, well, nobody had seen it. It just came out. He launches into this very detailed plot summary. And people are looking around like, where's this gone? And he turns to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and he says, General, could, could something like this really happen? Could someone just break into our computers? And I'll look into that, Mr. President. Comes back a week later, says, Mr. President, the problem is much worse than you think. Much worse than you think. And this is an example of Reagan, you know, so often derided for conflating the movies he was in and actual history. Uh, I mean, it just strikes me as, A, he we got something real out of the movie, and B, if that movie were rated R, right? If Ali Sheedy were naked for a second, he, he never would have watched it. He wouldn't it. have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, so this led to the first presidential directive on computer security, which caused an outcry because it was giving all the power to the NSA, Mm -hmm. which led to the argument over whether how much the NSA should have entered to our lives. Everything, every place where we're at now. Are the hackers that the U.S. government has working for them, I'm sure they'd use a different word, are they good enough? Yeah, there is this outfit within the NSA called the Tailored Access Operations Office, TAO. These are the guys, they work in a separate part of NSA and in their remote centers. There's two combination locks and a retinal scanner that you have to go through just to go through it. 
These are the guys who, when the president or somebody says, I need to get in this guy's computer, or I need to know what these guys are saying in this room, or I need to destroy the centrifuges of Iran's Natanz reactor. These are the guys who figured it out. These are the guys, it's like digital black bag operations. These are the guys who get in. And that at the same time, there's an outfit in the CIA called the Information Operations Center. They kind of sometimes do joint operations where NSA needs somebody to slip a little thumb drive into something or to put a little beacon on something so that they can hone in on that. Mm -hmm. uh, they need a physical something to hone in on. For example, when a computer isn't plugged into the internet, they need to have something else throwing out a beacon. Those code words that you rattled off at the yep. beginning, those are the code words of operations that were invented by TAO. Not just hacking into the internet, but hacking into cell phones that are turned off, hacking into the emissions from the video display of a computer, being able to turn on the microphone on a laptop remotely so that you can listen to everything's going on. Yeah. These guys do that sort of thing, and there's very little that they're unable to get into. So we know some of the hacks and some of the cyber warfare that's taken place. We know that what's now called the Stuxnet virus mm -hmm. uh, really screwed up the centrifuges in Iran. We knew that the Israelis were aided by destroying Syrian anti-aircraft radar capability. Mm -hmm. We know that Estonia, there was this huge hack in the right. country of Estonia. Do you think there's a lot of hacks that we don't know about that were on that level? Yeah, I think there probably is. I mean, for example, one thing that I discovered while doing the research in my book is that during the Iraq War in 2007, when things turned around a bit, mm -hmm. in the past and even in a previous book that I wrote, you know, this has been commonly attributed to the troop surge and General Petraeus's switch to a counterinsurgency strategy. That's true to some extent, but it turns out it was also the NSA. They were put on the ground in Iraq. It went, over time, 6,000 NSA analysts were in a base in Iraq. 22 of them were killed going out on raids by, by roadside bombs. So they captured some insurgent computers. They hacked into them, found the password lists, the email distribution list, figured out what they're doing. And then the linguists would write phony emails to the guys on the list saying, you know, let's meet at such and such a place tomorrow at four o'clock. And waiting for them would be some special operations forces who would kill them. See, the smart but, thing there was they didn't identify themselves as a Nigerian prince. That was that was <laughs> that key. Would, yeah. They do that too. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they click the link. <laughs> so we talk about asymmetric warfare, and obviously the United States has the ability to wage war on an enemy much greater than they have the ability to wage war on us. But what about when it comes to cyber warfare? Is the symmetry much less asymmetric? In other words, are they closer to us than in other areas of warfare? Well, it's asymmetric in a variety of ways, some mm -hmm. good, some bad. Good, we are way better at doing this kind of thing, much better than other countries. But our military and our society, our economy, is way more plugged in, way more dependent on computer networks that are vulnerable. So, you know, we have better stones, so to speak, to throw at their houses, but our house is way glassier yeah. than theirs. Yeah. So they're 
lighter weight stones could do more damage to us. I mean, to give an example, I found out about this after I wrote my book. So this is like the material on the bonus disc for, for the book. <laughs> right. The Navy is now starting to train their navigators on ships to use sextants to navigate by the stars in case the data links to the GPS are hacked. Our military, our qualitative advantage is based on stuff that is all plugged in to networks. Yeah. There was a Defense Science Board study a couple years ago about cyber war, cyber attacks, and at one point they referred to the inherent fragility of our architectures. The inherent, this is like going back to what Willis Ware was saying in 1967. It's inherent. And so what they talk about now is detection mm -hmm. and resilience. And you have all these stories where groups like the Red Team yeah. are asked, okay, uh, do a self-hack. See, see how vulnerable they are. They do. They find that we're really vulnerable. And what else do they find? Oh, someone else has been here. Well, it's amazing. <laughs> that The first exercise like this, it was called Eligible Receiver in 1997. Uh, the director of the NSA at the time, a three-star named Ken Minahan, was frustrated that none of his fellow generals were worried about this at all. So they had a hack. It had to go through a lot of lawyers. Yeah. And one condition was that the 25-man red team in the NSA that was doing this had to use commercially available equipment. They couldn't use their own top-secret SIGINT stuff on American networks. Anyway, they laid aside two weeks for this exercise. They got into the entire Defense Department networks in four days, including the National Military Command Center, which is the link between the president and the secretary of defense. Sometimes they just planted a little Kilroy was here thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they just got into the emails, closed off the password, shut them down, sent false emails, intercepted some, listened in on phone conversations. I mean, and they presented, of course, all this in, in the debrief. But yeah, while they were in there roaming around the network, they saw some French IPs roaming around the network. This is in 1997. Yeah. They kicked them out very quickly. And in fact, that part of the exercise wasn't briefed to everybody. So Stuxnet, which is the U.S. worm that got its way through a number of fascinating ways that you detail, really did screw up the Iranian centrifuges. And that's a good thing. And all the generals that you talk to, and most people say, well, better than a human being doing it or dropping a bomb or risking a war or killing an American. And yet the chapter is called Crossing the Rubicon because it's using technology to destroy something actual, something yeah. physical, and that's something really to think about. Because right. once we do it to them, you know, when, when you cross the Rubicon, we have a legion on the other side. Yeah. There has been concern about the vulnerability of critical infrastructure here since the 80s. And yet, we are the first, you know, launching the attack on Iranian centrifuges, that's an attack on critical infrastructure. And it was the first time that a computer was used in real life to destroy a physical object. Mm -hmm. So if we're getting in their infrastructure and they're getting in our infrastructure, yeah. who's to say, is this active defense or is it prelude to an attack? And you know, if you're on the receiving end of this, you have to assume it's prelude to an attack. And let's say there's a growing crisis and there's a confrontation and you're worried that China or whoever is going to blow out our system, our communication systems as a prelude to the battle, well, you might want to blow out their communications first before they right. blow out our communications. Right. So there is built in to this whole system an incentive 
for preemption. Right. Something that was the, this... the analogy would be like, uh, what if we were constantly showing up targets in bomb sites? It's like, well, we're not pressing the button on the bomb. We're not actually firing the missile. Yeah. And then we found out they were doing it too. Well, wouldn't we get a little antsy and say, all right, yeah. this time we are going to press so, the so button? So something that was designed as a defensive measure mm-hmm. turns out to, in fact, perhaps propel us forward on an, a spiral of escalation that seems perfectly rational mm-hmm. while you're going down the spiral. It just strikes me that this whole debate in Republican circles of because we're not strong enough, we have to negotiate. Obama can't come out and say, we're plenty strong. We have been attacking them, haven't we? <laughs> just not stupidly with dumb bombs. We've been yeah. attacking them more than you could even know, more than well, I could admit. Yeah, the whole thing, I mean, this gets into a different topic. One thing I find out in my book is that this has been going on this kind of thinking for 40 years, but it's all in things like the NSA. You know, in the old days, the NSA, the joke was that it stands for no such agency. Yeah. So right now, because they, they realized that offense and defense are the same thing, they finally fuse the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command. We have a combatant command yeah. that is built around these things. They have war plans up the wazoo. They have connections with every other combatant command. And yet, there is a defense science board panel happening right now Looking into the question of what is cyber deterrence, you know, kind of a fundamental question, yeah. you'd think. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah. What are you trying to deter exactly? What is in the interest of the United States government to deter? And how do you go about doing that? What is cyber war? What is day two of cyber war? How do you control this once it gets moving? There's cyber attacks all the time. Where is the line between a nuisance and a serious national security threat? So you have this whole machinery of war built up very sophisticated. And yet the foundations, the policy, the strategy, the underlying premises, they are still being worked out. They're in a very primitive state. And part of that is because until very recently, it's all been locked up in the most secretive agency, the United States government. And people on the outside who might have a a, a keen strategic angle on this don't know enough about what's going on on the inside to to flex their intellectual muscles. Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War by Fred Kaplan. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you. And now a story of shaving. So I've taped a couple specials for uh, the History Channel. It's called How to Lose an Election. It will air after Craig Ferguson. It's one of those talking head shows where wise asses or wise men the line between them is sometimes thin. Go on, they talk about, you know, a gaffe that a politician made. So I recorded some a couple weeks ago, and then I recorded others today, and they wanted me to come back in and more or less match. And I found out something. I wanted to tell you this. I cheated, guys. I used a non-Harry's razor. I had a different razor, supposedly a great razor. I used this razor, and it was okay, only okay. I didn't screw myself up, but it's okay when you're going on television, you don't give yourself a good shave, because there's the makeup person there to fix you up. Then I went to do the touch-up, and you know what I did? I shaved the night before with Harry's, and it turns out I matched. So what I'm saying is, a Harry's razor the night before will give you as close a shave as some other store-bought, advertised-for-a-lot-of-money, charge-you-a-lot-of-money razor. Harry's 
12 hours later, a better, closer, less bloody shave than the big boys. And really, why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades that you could get for half the price at Harry's, and they'll send them to you, and they've got this deal. So for $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave, cream, and three razor blades. Unless you haven't taken me up on my Harry's offer before, because they're going to give you that deal for $10, $5 off that deal. Here's what you do. You go to harrys.com right now and you use the promo code GIST, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter code GIST at checkout. And now, news from the States. Andrea, you've got a crew there in the production room. Can you do a jingle? And now, news from... The States! I love a good jingle. In Missouri, a 39-hour filibuster was eventually defeated by the forces of freedom. Freedom! Religious freedom. Defined as, the call by William Wallace might imply, the freedom... The freedom not to bake a cake for gay people. Religious liberty must be enshrined in the state constitution, Missouri said. And by a 23 to 9 vote, it will come to a vote of all Missourians. But some members of the Missouri Senate tried to block the bill, tried to oppose what Rousseau and John Locke envisioned when they thought and wrote of freedom. Which is, of course, not baking a cake for two gay dudes. That's the definition of freedom. The freedom to discriminate. That is the greatest freedom of all. Not because you don't want to bake the cake. It's just that the Lord told you not to bake a cake for a gay wedding, even though every other vendor or businessman, of course, serves a gay clientele, and the vast majority of those people aren't dicks about it. No, wait, not dicks. Lovers of freedom. Freedom! Mostly, the filibustering senators stayed on topic, but there were a few forays into the tangential. According to the New York Times, they touched on such areas as Tyler Perry movies and Jews who eat pork. I'm not sure in what context or how this was brought up, but I just imagine they were compiling lists and maybe two senators' lists got mixed up. So someone took to the floor of the Missouri Senate and said, uh, my fellow senators, um, a Medea Christmas, Medea goes to jail, Bernie Sanders, temptation, confessions of a marriage counselor, why did I get married, Medea's family reunion, David Lee Roth, diary of a mad black woman, pink on her mother's side, Medea gets a job, and Ira Glass. I would stay for that filibuster. In other state news, the state of Louisiana just ended an emergency session to avoid total economic catastrophe. And they achieved that goal. In the final few minutes of a 25-day session, they did avoid total economic catastrophe. They instead settled on partial financial calamity. They're still $30 million short of funding the state this cycle. It looks like they're going to be, I don't know, $800 million short of funding for the next cycle. You knew it was serious when the new governor, John Bell Edwards, took to the airwaves last month and he made his case to all Louisianans. He began to cite services left and right that the state wouldn't be able to provide. He began to talk about citizens who would be hurt if the financial obligations weren't met. Our healthcare system is on the verge of imploding. All right, that's a system. What about actual people? People like Braden Wilson. Braden is nine years old and suffers from Lee's disease. 
He's been bedridden since birth and requires around-the-clock care. Okay, but what about actual people we care about? Higher education this year will need to cut $42 million. Oh, come on, Governor. Who cares about some snotty college kid and people in hospitals? I mean, people in hospitals are going to all eventually die anyway. I mean, give me something that I, as a Louisianan, really give a hoot about. That means you can say farewell to college football next fall. What? College football? The LSU Tigers? The Bayou Bengals? We've got the number three recruiting class in the country. They can run. They can block. They don't need dialysis. Restore the funds. Restore the funds. And so they did for a while. The funds will kick in around the time of summer practice and through the end of the regular season, through the last game against Texas A&M, and yeah, probably all the way to the SEC championship. Crisis averted. Unlike Charleston, West Virginia, where state legislatures first legalized a controlled substance and then partook of that substance liberally, and now they're paying the price. WSAZ Charleston has more details. Something is going around the Capitol. A handful of delegates have been sick, including Hancock County Delegate Pat McGeehan, who was so ill last night, he did his interview with us lying down. I've been pretty ill since Saturday evening. He says it's a stomach bug, but there is an investigation after an anonymous complaint cites raw milk that was used to toast the passage of the raw milk bill last week got the delegates sick. WSAZ has confirmed one delegate was actually admitted to the hospital. I didn't start getting sick until Saturday evening. That's Seems like a large time gap there. And that, you heard from him again there a second time, was prostrate state delegate Pat McGeehan. There was a book by, actually, John Locke opened on his chest. His eyes were closed. He had his hand to his forehead. He was kind of pinching the bridge of his nose. But damn it, he was given WSAZ the interview. Now, interestingly, the raw milk bill did not authorize the consumption of raw milk instead. Even if it wasn't the milk that got McGeehan or others sick, there's still an issue. The new law goes into effect in three months, and it says that people can use raw milk if they buy a share in a cow or milk-producing animal and sign a statement saying they understand the risks. A share of the cow. I'd go for the dangly parts down beneath. So it seems like these lactose-laid-low lawmakers did more than buy the cow. They got the milk for free, and now they're paying the price. Whereas elsewhere, officials get in trouble for skimming off the top by milking the public. If these West Virginians had only stuck to the skim milk protocol, they'd be healthy today. Caught me in the hallway and offered a cup to me and you want to try to be a gentleman. I had a small sip and then walked away and tossed the rest of it. Now, I highly doubt uh, raw milk had anything to do with it in my case. And this has been News from the States. News from the States. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi regrets toasting the legalization of chainsaw juggling in the specifically aggressive fashion that she toasted it in. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, favors the legalization of unbelted roller coasters, but he'll never celebrate in the same way again. Sure, Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, argues that a law against owning Bengal tigers is certainly a relic, and he'd put his one remaining hand on the Bible and swear to it. The gist... The gist stands with those who fight excessive regulation and red tape, especially regarding the hoisting of pianos through third-story windows. Listen, it could have been worse. Billy Joel could have been playing that piano at the time. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.